said, God, we're all laughing with God. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. Daniel chapter 3, and you'll see the verses coming up. Remember, they start from the bottom and move up on your notes. They uh, go the other way. Uh, let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you've made us to stand up and stand out. I pray that we would. And I pray, Lord, whenever we're faced with the courage of conviction, we never compromise and never conform. May we be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called The Crucible. A crucible is a place where metal is heated up to an extreme heat so that it liquefies. And the purpose of the crucible is to make the metal, whether silver or gold, far more valuable by eliminating impurity within it, perfecting it. God uses the crucible. And what is the crucible? It's when we're tested by fire. We're tested by trials, by pain, by suffering. And, and life heats up around us. And what happens is God uses that to personally touch us and perfect us and purify us. We uh, saw a few weeks ago, Mike Bro was sharing that he entered a crucible moment when he had to literally put his daughter on the altar. He had to say, God, I'm going to trust my daughter who I love with all my heart to you. And very often, God tests us like he did Abraham by saying, are we willing to give to him that which is most precious to us? Gene Apple shared last week that he entered the crucible when everything fell apart. When he was at the height of success and everything came tumbling down and he didn't know if he had anything left, but all he did know is this, and I love what Gene said, he learned that when he had Jesus and nothing else, that Jesus was enough. That Jesus was enough. And he was tested and he came out shining for God in an amazing way. So we could be tested by having to give everything. We can be tested by having to lose everything. And you ready for this? We can be tested when all of a sudden people persecute us and attack us because we're standing for Christ. When they want us to bow down, when they want us to conform. And we need to be careful not to be people who compromise, who sell out. I don't know if you heard about the very, very wealthy man that was being honored. And he was taken by a beautiful young girl and he walked up to her in the midst of all this and he said, excuse me, I think you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. And she was like, well, thank you. He said, look, I'm leaving town. I don't have time. I'm just going to cut right to it. If I give you a million dollars, would you sleep with me? And she was just like gasp and looked at him. And he goes, I'm serious. And she goes, um, okay, yeah, I'll do it. He said, would you do it for $100? And she said, what do you think I am? And he said, we've already established that. Now we're bargaining on price. Um, <laughs> You see, the, a person of conviction doesn't sell out for a hundred or a million or even if it costs them their life. Are we a people of conviction? Do we live for God completely? There's an old saying in the 70s that I love, and it says, if you were arrested for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? And hopefully you'd say, yes, there is. There are two men that passed that test in a pretty amazing way. It was started in the late 60s going into the 1970s. The two Amish men's faith were tested. Jonas Yoder and Wallace Miller were both arrested because they refused to put their children in public school. They believed that the public school was a place of sin. They believed that they had to be the ones to train their children. They refused to put them in. They were arrested and their children were taken away from them. They uh, were told, we'll give your children back to you if you'll put them in public school. They refused. 
They appealed and lost and were put back in jail again, and their children were not returned to them. And their case made it all the way to the Supreme Court when on May the 15th, 1972, in Wisconsin versus Yoder, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, saying that they were a people of religious conviction, and convictions are protected by the United States Constitution. But interestingly, what the Supreme Court said They said religious preference is not protected by the Constitution. And so that case was used to define what is protected and what is not. What is a preference and what is a conviction? I think it's very interesting to notice what it says. Are you ready? A preference, according to the United States Supreme Court, is a strong, intense belief. A preference is something you would be willing to go into full-time service for. Something you would give all your wealth to. Something you would be energetic to propagate and you would teach your children, but that's not protected. Uh, They said a conviction is protected though. And what is the difference between a preference and a conviction? They said a conviction is something you would not change because of peer or public pressure. If people around you are pressuring, you still won't change. You won't change because of family pressure. You won't change because of a lawsuit, even if you lose. In other words, when those two men lost and they said, we're still not relenting, that proved that they had very real conviction. And they were willing to go to jail for what they believed. A person of conviction would literally give up their freedom rather than relent. The early church was that way. The early church would not bend. At the time of the Roman government, it was not against the law to worship Jesus. It was just against the law to say you would worship only Jesus. And, and Christians, literally, all they had to do to get out of being uh, 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 jailed, tortured, and killed, and having their children take them from them, many of them, all they had to do was take a pinch of salt and drop it into an offering to Diana in fire. And at that moment, they were free to go but they would not even take a pinch of salt and defame and defile the name of God. And we say that the church is built on the blood of martyrs, people of conviction who know what God has required of us, who say our faith is non-negotiable, who say we will bow to no one else. Which brings us to Daniel chapter three. Three men who would not bow. Three men who were men of conviction and because of that they had to go to a very real crucible, a place of testing. It opens up that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of Babylon, made a statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. If you want to know how big that is, when you walk out of our building, look at our palm trees. They're about 90 feet high. That's how big this was. By the way, uh, for all of you who are wondering whether the Bible's true, uh, it wasn't that many years ago that in the plain of Dura, they actually excavated the pedestal that this statue stood on. It was a very real statue. And what Nebuchadnezzar did is he had it overlaid with gold. And he said, I want everyone to gather together. And when I command the orchestra to play, he had a huge orchestra. I want you to bow down and worship the statue. That should have been a problem for anybody that followed God. Some years later, a man named Mordecai would risk his freedom in life because he would not bow down. But in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar had said, if you do not bow down, you will be thrown into a furnace and you will be burned till you die. So he gathered the highest officials together. He gathered most of the people in the empire together. The orchestra played and everybody bowed down but three men. And then some people came to expose them. Verse 12. It says, there are certain Jews who have been appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
These men, O king, have disregarded you. They have not, they do not serve your gods and worship the golden image which you have set up. They said no. Three men out of thousands and millions, three men who said, I won't do it. Three men who stood up and stood out. Here's the question we got to ask. Where was everybody else? One of the questions we ask is, where was Daniel? We can't imagine that Daniel bowed down. Maybe he was standing to the right of the king. Maybe he was away on business. There's no way Daniel would have bowed down. But certainly these three men didn't. But what about all the other Jewish people? What are they doing? Maybe in their minds they thought, oh, I'll bow down outwardly, but inwardly I'm still going to worship God. But that's a sin. That's compromise. Maybe they thought, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was given the vision of this statue and a dream by God. So somehow we can mix that into our belief system. But God had warned that we only worship the Lord our God. God had instructed them not to bow down. We got to ask, where were they? Henry David Thoreau had decided that a particular tax was unethical. He refused to pay it, so he was put in jail. When he was jailed for not paying this tax, Ralph Waldo Emerson, his mentor and friend, went to visit him in jail. And when he walked in and he looked through the bars at Henry David Thoreau sitting there, he said this, he said, Henry David, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau answered back, Ralph Waldo, what are you doing out there? Do you ever wonder, why aren't we willing to stand, to take, to be different? We need to be those kind of people. We are to be a people who bow to no one. We bow to no one but the Lord our God. Peter Cartwright was a man like that. Peter Cartwright was a pastor at the time that Andrew Jackson was the president of the United States. He was a fiery pastor who stood for great things. God used him over and over again to bring conviction where there was sin and to bring comfort where there was pain. And and he sparked a revival in his area of the country. But Cartwright was famous for something else. During the worship time, he would sit in the back and pray and say, God, do you have a particular message for anybody who was here? And then he would walk out and always begin to sermon if there was a message to be given. And so very often he would have someone stand up and they would pray for them. But you know what else he would do? He would also come out and have someone stand up and call them on their sin in front of everybody. In one particular case, remember this is back in the time of Andrew Jackson, he walked out and he said, well, Mr. Smith stand, that was a different name, but will Mr. Smith stand, he goes, Mr. Smith, it's come to my notice that you're committing adultery on your wife. And he said, and you better repent or you'll burn in hell. And, you know, everyone's like, and he would just do that. And people would be like, man, if he calls me out. Well, one day he was sitting back there praying. One of his elders came to him and said, Mr. Cartwright, uh, President Jackson is sitting in the congregation today. Would you be sure and not say anything that would embarrass us? And uh, Peter Cartwright came walking out and he said, I have been told that President Jackson is here today. Mr. President, would you stand up? Jackson stands. And he said, I want to tell you something. It doesn't matter if you're the President of the United States. If you do not repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus Christ, you will burn in hell like everybody else. You can sit down. And uh, (laughs) afterwards, reporters swarmed Jackson to ask his reaction to it. And here's what he said. He said, if I had a regiment of people like Peter Cartwright, I could change the world. Now, isn't that wild? And I want to tell you that three men 
Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they changed their world. If Christians stand for God, they assault the gates of hell and they change the world around them. And that's how God wants us to be. People who will not compromise, who will not be conformed, who will not give in. People of conviction, whose faith means something. That's what God calls us to. But for them, for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they would enter the crucible based on this. Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar's been told about them. He has warned them that if they do not do what he says to do, he will throw them into a furnace of fire and they will die. And he actually said these words, and what God, what God can rescue you from my hand? And notice what they say. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver deliver us out of your hand. But I love that. He goes, God could save us, but notice verse 18. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God could save us. He has the power to do it, but if he doesn't, we'd rather die. We would die for him. We will not relent. We will not back down. We will not stop. It doesn't matter. Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged, he decides to throw them in the furnace. Look at verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times, more than it usually was heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 21. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason... Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Let me say as clearly as I can, when you and I stand for Jesus, we may get literally crucified. I had a friend of mine tell me something recently and I thought, you know, it's true. You can stand up and say you believe in God all you want, but the minute you mention the name Jesus, you're in trouble. Have you noticed that? If you're a teacher here today and you stand in front of your classroom, say, hey, just by the way, I believe in God. I bet you will get hardly any complaints. But if you stood up before your class and said, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and God in the flesh. He's the way, truth, and life and no one comes to the father but by, you think you get some complaints? Oh, you bet. All the time I have people say to me, hey, would you pray at our public gathering? But please don't mention Jesus. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, Jesus is the great divider. And when you and I stand for Jesus and stand for God's word, we are going to be tested. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, at some time people will attack you. It may be in a minor way, it may be in a greater way, but if we stand for God's word, we will be persecuted. And if we seek to live a godly life, a life according to scripture, we will be persecuted. Some years back when I was the youth pastor in Orange County, our youth group in a particular high school became a target of persecution. Now, I mean, it was really amazing how strong the persecution was from some faculty and many, many students 
And I remember we gathered together and I said, you know, praise God, you guys, you're standing out and you're standing up and stay strong. And then that night we gave some kids a ride home and this guy, Tom, kind of got emotional. He said, man, I did not know it would be like this. And I said, well, Tom, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to give God, or live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I said, it's just what God promised. And he looked at me and said, why didn't you tell me that when I became a Christian? I said, well, we should have. We should have. Jesus said it, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus said, if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. And we need to understand that. By the way, in our day and time, people are having to make the choice to stand for God or to fall apart. To bow down to the world or stand and say, I only worship the Lord my God through Jesus Christ. By the way, a day is coming where it's going to get worse. And I'm not, not trying to be paranoid. The Bible promises it, but we're watching it happen. But we're seeing it happen all the time. Uh, I sat with a, a young guy who had uh, some years back, a few, not very many years ago, a few years ago, he, he came and he began to debate whether Christianity was true, pure Christianity, or this kind of cultic group he belonged to. Very large cult. And, and he kept saying, but we're Christians too. And I'm like, no, you're not. You know, you believe in multitudes of gods. And, and so we'd agreed to meet him in our living room and to really talk it through. And, and, to, and he was an intelligent guy, a good looking guy, a strong guy. He brought a bunch of friends. And, and then I, I had some of his friends who were already Christians. And we got together and we got out our Bibles and we started digging in. And as I began to show him things that, that in their religion would not line up with scripture, I could just see that he, he wasn't listening. He, he was just deflecting it. And I thought, well, I kind of expected it. But then something happened that I wasn't ready for. The Holy Spirit took over. And, and I showed him in his book a false prophecy. And he said, well, that concerns the last days. And I said, oh, no, that doesn't have anything to do with the last days. Do you understand the signs of the coming of Jesus? And he goes, well, no. And, and I said, well, do you want to get off on He goes, yeah. And all of a sudden, we went away from what was wrong with what they were believing to show them the signs of the coming of the Lord. And as I did, he could see it didn't line up with their religion. And I am not kidding. I'm not overemphasizing. He got really emotional. I saw his hands shaking. Tears in his eyes. And then I looked at him and I said, you can see how real this is, can't you? And he's like, yeah. And I said, are you ready to give your life to Jesus? Now his friends are watching him. But he got pretty, pretty transparent. He said this. He said, if I say yes, if I say yes, I'll lose everything. I'll lose my fiance. I'll lose my family. I work for my fiance's father. I'll lose my job. I'll lose most of my friends. I'll lose everything. And I looked at him and I said, but are you going to say yes, knowing what it will cost you? I want to ask you a question. What if it cost you everything to follow Jesus? Some of you it might have. Would you say yes? He's sitting there. By the way, this is very real. He's going to lose it all if he ends up giving his life to Christ. He knew it was true. You could tell he knew it was true. What about you and what about me? Are we ready to take a stand and say we're willing to never back down? Uh, it was just another couple years ago, I sat with a young guy who had become a police officer. It was his dream. We had prayed that he would get in the academy, and he did. And he was hired by a police force. 
He was only two months into riding along when he witnessed two other police officers beat a man senselessly. And he was warned to keep his mouth shut. And he came and said, Chuck, if I expose this, I think I'm gone. My dream of being a cop will be over. I mean, I'll pay. I'll pay. And I looked and said, what would Jesus do? Now, I I knew it would cost him. I knew it would cost him. God knew he was entering a crucible moment when he stand for God in the midst of that situation. By the way, I want to tell you how real this is. In the last year, actually two years, we've had uh, two different men who I've sat and prayed with who were facing financial devastation because the economy had turned. Both of them were offered very lucrative ways out. One of them was offered an opportunity to become a lead design architect on a Hindu temple. It would have meant a lot of money. And he said, but as a Christian, can I do that? By the way, when he stood for God and said, no, I won't do it, they came back and offered even more money. And he stood strong and said no. But it cost him. And it cost his firm. And it cost his future. It dented it in a pretty big way. It cost him to follow Jesus. Another man was offered the opportunity to be the lead contractor on a Buddhist place of worship. His company hadn't had one offer in uh, seemed like forever. As a matter of fact, he was a couple of weeks away from laying off most of his employees. And he was offered all this money to go and do that. Not with anything else on the horizon. And he stood strong and said no, and he lost his company, and he lost his home. But I want to tell you what he didn't lose. He did not lose his reward in heaven because he stood for God. See, we're going to face this more and more and more. I want you not to miss that. It's coming up on us. This whole world's turned, and it's going to turn against us. That's what the Bible says in the last days. Just to have you think about that, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says this. It says, woe to those who call good or call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We live in that time. We live in a time right now when we say, no, but here's what the Bible teaches, and people think it's an evil thing the Bible teaches, and thinks that we're evil for teaching it. Where a few years ago, that wasn't the case. Listen to what it goes on to say. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Now, I'm going to get real honest and specific. You ready? You know what I'm talking about is Proposition 8. Now that that's been overturned, we're going to enter a time of testing. Because the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And the world doesn't like that. Even there's some of you right now are going, well, that sounds hateful. Now, I want to tell you, it's, it's not. God says that sin is sin. And we need to help people be saved from it and redeemed from it and brought out of it. If that's what you struggle with, I want to tell you, we love you and we want to help you be set free. Just like any other sin. But we're not going to say it's okay. And by the way, that means that we're not going to do gay marriages here in this church. We're not going to do those kinds of things. Our school is going to stand strong and only hiring born-again Christians who hold to what the Bible says. And, you know, I've had people already warning us, get ready, it might cost us our tax-exempt status. And by the way, I, I, that just really seems funny to me. That's the only threat you've got. Um, and here's why. Because while that might be a threat to our church family in the immediate future, 
There are some of you who are police officers, it's going to become a threat very soon. Some of you who are teachers, it's going to cost you your credential. Some of you who are doctors, you're not going to be allowed to get licensed and practice medicine. It's really, we're heading that way. Matter of fact, there are some of you who are counselors and psychologists. At, I'll just get real specific. There are people attending our church who are counselors and psychologists that have already been warned they better not ever say someone can be actually redeemed and saved and brought whole out of homosexuality. That it's a sin and a problem and they can be actually saved, even though we know they can. And, and you know what I want to say is that we can't bow down. Now that and other things is going to lead to a worldwide persecution where those who really hold to what Christianity is is going to be attacked. Jesus said it would happen in the last days. In Matthew 24, 9 and 10, Jesus said this, one of the signs of his coming, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now notice the sad thing. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now obviously it's going to be a pruning time. When the church enters a crucible moment of persecution and testing like that, many will not be apart. They will walk away. They will not stay with us. As a matter of fact, just as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had to face a very real idol and say no, somehow in the last days, a man who will call himself a Christian and be a Christian leader will actually have the voice of the devil and he will set up an image that he wants people to bow down to. Now, how that's going to happen, we don't know, but we can see it coming. And what the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 13 is the Antichrist will arise. There will be an assassination attempt on his life. And because of that, more than ever, he'll be more popular than he's ever been. And then a religious leader who looks like a Christian but speaks like the devil will deceive people. And he'll back the Antichrist. But notice what it says in Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Then I saw another beast, someone other than the Antichrist, coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. He'll look like a Christian, but he'll speak like the dragon. Verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives all those on the face of the earth because of the signs it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those, now notice this, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life and was given him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small, the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of that of a man. And his number is 666. That's going to come. That's going to happen. And I believe we're seeing not only God's promise of this coming, I think we're seeing a fulfillment beginning in our day. It's beginning to happen. And when we enter the crucible, are we going to stand strong? By the way, even though you may have to stand strong, I want to promise you this, you'll never stand alone. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did not have to stand alone. Look back at Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25. It says this. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. 
And he said to his officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied, well, certainly, O king. Verse 25. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods or a son of God. Jesus appeared and met with them. That's what I believe. That's what many believe. That all of a sudden, in the midst of it all, they hit the ground and look up and there's Jesus. And he said, you stood for me. You stood with me. The Messiah that you long to see is now here with you. You'll never, ever be alone. There's a famous poem that many of you have heard about called Footprints. And it's the story of a man who had a dream. And in his dream, he and Jesus were walking side by side on a beach. He looked back and noticed that there were two sets of prints as they walked together. But then he noticed something else. Every time they hit a time of trial, a time that was tough, there would only be one set of footprints. And he said, Lord, why in my time where I needed you most did you leave me? And I was left to walk alone. And the Lord said, I didn't leave you. I picked you up and carried you. I want to tell you the closest I've ever felt to God, and many of you would agree with what I'm about to say, is in tough times. When we've needed to endure where our hearts were breaking, or we were under attack more than any ever. You sense God drawing you closer than you can imagine. It's in those times that he actually grabs hold of you, and you're never, ever going to leave him. He wants you to walk in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be with him. And he's never going to leave us. In John 16, it says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He said, I've given you all this. There's gonna be tribulation in the world, but I'm gonna give you a peace that can't be taken from you. And he will never leave us. That's why our theme verse for this whole series is 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself, now notice this, will himself come be with you to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He'll do that. He's not going to let you go. Uh, a verse I didn't give them to put up, but I want to have you write this one down. Psalm 66, 10 to 12. Listen to this. Man, awesome passage. Listen to It says, for you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You have laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Now listen to this. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. It may be for a while, but in the end, you're going to be blessed. I looked at him and said, are you going to say yes to Jesus? And he said, if I say yes, I'm going to lose my fiance, my family, my job. I'm going to lose everything. And I want to tell you what he said. He said yes. He said yes. He gave his life to Christ. And uh, he did in the moment lose. Matter of fact, I'm trying to arrange it at a point to have him come share his testimony with you. But in the moment, he lost those things. But I'll tell you, the day we get to have him here, you know what you're going to see? Not just him. He gave his life to Christ and met a beautiful Christian girl a few years later. They fell in love and got married. Her family embraced him like he couldn't imagine. And he found out the difference between a family that had conditional love and one that had unconditional love. 
He ended up going on to have a great career, but he also has an amazing ministry together with his wife where they have led and touched the lives of, I'm going to say, lots and lots of people. God's blessed them with children. He, for a period of time, was tested. Had he known what God was going to give him, he would have jumped on it in a moment. But in the moment, he didn't know what he would gain, only what he would lose. But he also knew this, that if he gave everything up, he would get Jesus. And he did it. He did it. Now, I hope you and I, if we're ever faced, would never back down, never relent, never compromise, never conform. And I want you to know that that's who God's called us to be. And at times, we're going to ask. We're going to be tested. We're going to have to see if that's who we are. Today, I want to say this. If you're here in our midst and you are not in a very real personal relationship with Jesus, in such a way that when you have times like that, that you can know his presence comes into your life in an amazing way, even more than normal. Where you experience him touching you to perfect you, to confirm you, to establish you, to strengthen you. If you haven't sensed a life with him like that, then I want to invite you to it. How do you enter it? Well, the answer is this. You tell him you want it. Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. If you would open up to me, I'd come into you. What you do is you say, Lord, I want this. And in a moment, we're going to go to a time of prayer. And I'm going to invite anybody here who wants to say yes to Jesus to give your life to him. I know some of you have got to be sitting here going, wait, wait, wait. You just said if I do this, I'm going to get persecuted. And I did. And you will. You will. But I want to ask you, is it worth it to you? Because if you would say yes to him on a day like this and be willing to give yourself to him on a day like this, you'll never fall. And you'll be a person who's going to live an amazing life. So I'm going to ask you today, are you ready to say yes to him? If you're a, a Christian here today, but you're not living all out for God, you're not wholehearted in your commitment, you're not experiencing him any longer, I'm going to ask you, would you recommit? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you that you love us. And Lord, in your love, you've even called for us very often to be stretched and tested. But you never leave our side. You never ask us to go through it alone. And I love, Lord, that whenever that's happened in my life, that you've been right there. Those times haven't been easy, and I'm glad they weren't now looking back. Oh, but Lord, to know you in those moments, to see what you do and how you bring us through it, to see the victory that eventually comes, the abundance. Oh, Lord, it's worth everything. I pray today that none of us here would ever relent, compromise, or conform. May we be, Lord, pure in our commitment to you. I ask God now, though, I want to ask, Lord, that you would be with some people who are here right now that are being tested. I pray for them, Lord, to find your strength. I pray that the peace that you already have given would actually flourish more. God, I pray they would walk out of here with joy, all of a sudden ready to face whatever it is and to conquer. But they would not back down. And Lord, I want to pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would enter this room. Lord, I'm going to ask and pray that you would touch anyone right now who needs to commit their life to you. I pray, God, that they could sense it right where they're sitting. And I know it seems like a fairly scary message, but I pray that's not what's going to be happening. Lord, I pray that right now they're going to sense your love. And God, I pray they're going to sense a calling in their heart and life to rise up, 
to live with you and for you. So God, we pray there's a stirring upon people to say yes to you. And Lord, I pray for the person who needs to come back. God, that they, they actually, in their heart and mind, they think this is who they want to be. And it doesn't matter the failures they've had or the times they've slipped, but they're about to rise up. So God, I pray you're going to stir and touch anybody who needs to make a commitment to you now. I'm going to ask that we keep praying, but I'm going to lead a prayer for anybody who wants to say yes to the Lord. If you're here today and you sense him calling you, or you want this, I'm going to ask you to begin the process right where you're sitting by saying a prayer with me, where you commit your life to him. He's real. And right now, I think there's some of you that he wants you to do this. So if so, if you're ready, say these words with me. Whisper this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurt, to free me from my fears. You died, Lord, to make me alive, to make me new, and to make me yours. And I say, yes, I want this and I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be who you created me to be and help me live the life you have for me to live. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, praise God for you.